Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. On today's podcast, I am not on the show. I'm just doing the intro, dropping in and saying a little bit of housekeeping and saying hello. John Pigeon will be joined by Vince Scully. I'm taking a couple of weeks off recording while I recover. They'll be talking about hex and help debt. They'll be talking about kids investing and different accounts for kids. A lot of stuff in there. They have a really good discussion around investing, uh, multiple accounts, brokerages, hex and help debt. And, you know, as usual, you'll be in good hands. But just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, we do have our annual census still out at the moment. You can complete that. Thanks for your feedback. I have noticed a couple of comments in there, and I'm talking to our regular listeners right now. A couple of people saying too many ads. Uh, just on that, that's one way that we make money to bring this podcast to you. And just in terms of too many ads, uh, I believe on most podcast plays, there's a 15 second skip button that can be used uh, for that. But more broadly, how the commercial codes work for ads. Usually you can't have more than 15 to 16 minutes per hour of content of ads. And podcasting is the wild west and it's not really regulated. We're not under any broadcasting laws. It's just really good to see that as a guide. Secondly, SBS and community radio can't have more than five minutes per hour. So what we really want to do, most episodes are an hour on the main show. And thanks for your grace while we just try and experiment with a couple of things with our ad software. We're thinking uh, two pre-roll ads. One of those ads will be a voiceover artist doing different products and random things. And we're still kind of working that out. I had a an ad removed for uh, incontinence pads the other day and just scrapped that category because I don't think that represents most of our listeners. So any like things that aren't that relevant will uh, we'll scrub out. And then we may run campaigns. Us, Simo, uh, will run our own internal announcements or other sponsorships. So pre-roll, which is before the show, random voiceover person might be 30 seconds long then up to 40 seconds for a host red ad, which is me. And the same for the mid-roll in the middle of the show. Now, when we do launch back up next year, we may have another show partner that might get a 30 second burned in ad uh, at the start of the podcast, but that's just a guide. And that is how I help to pay our team's salaries and wages each week. Uh, I do thank you for your support. We only really like to work with brands, particularly when my voice or any of the show host's voices are attached to that ad. It is something that we personally are happy with and we've looked at ourselves. Uh, but if there's a random voiceover person advertising a barbecue, well, that's just in the random pool and whatever. But um, yeah, thanks for your feedback. But honestly, I did before I started running all these ads. I put a post up in the Facebook group and I asked people, do you want ads or would you rather pay a Patreon thing and get an RSS fee, which is the podcast feed, without any ads at all. We'll strip it all out, pay a monthly subscription. I think there was around 2% of people that wanted that option. So thank you everyone for your support and allowing us to make money to provide the content to you. And as you'll see from this episode, we do a lot of user-generated content. We talk about the things that you're talking about in the Facebook group. Uh, and finally, and apologies, I have gone a little bit long with this housekeeping, but this is your podcast and the regulars who listen to this, I like to keep you informed with what we're doing and around this housekeeping stuff. So we'll get into it. And just by a rule of thumb, the Tuesday and Thursday main show, we like to be in the meat. I'm looking at the template now. When I do my intro and a little bit of housekeeping and a bit of a show partner shout out with the music under it, our template has the bump that goes into the main intro before it starts at about three minutes, three minutes, 20. So we'd like to be into the meat, into the conversation by around three to four minutes, absolute max. Okay, so that's our guide. Now I've gone over today because I just wanted to 
tell you guys about our housekeeping, about some of the things that we are experimenting, particularly the My Millennial Investor podcast. That's a shorter podcast. We had the settings set up, two ads, two ads, two ads. It was too long. So I've dropped that down to one ad pre, one ad mid-roll, one ad at the end. So thank you for your patience. We are working to make this a really good experience for you. And it is my goal that we'll never just interrupt uh, the course of conversations with an ad. We'll always tell you there's an ad coming up. So that's really important to me. So thank you so much. I will see you soon. You're in great hands with Vince and John in this episode. So I'm Glenn James and you're listening to My Millennial Money. Vince, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I do love a good Q&A, especially with you. Absolutely. So, Megan Young. Hi, everyone. I'm 28 years old, got a pretty high hex debt, 129000 and earning roughly 85 k per year. I've done some rough calculations and it may take me at least 20 years to pay back, meaning I'll be at least 48 until it is all paid back. Hypothetically, if I retire early at 45 and live off income from my super and investments, but still have some hex debt remaining, would I still have to be paying back my hex debt despite not actually earning a salary? Note, if you're wondering how I incurred such a large debt, I did both a bachelor and master's degree. I didn't get a CSP for my master's. Vince, Megan's well studied. Megan's obviously a very intelligent young woman. Um, I mean, I guess this is a bit about Hex doing the job it's designed to do. And talking about it as a debt is something that always bothers me. I know that's what the government calls it, but yes. it's sort of a an accounting fudge that really it's a graduate tax surcharge with a lifetime cap and your debt is the bit that's unpaid. So... So talk to the listeners, first of all, about the threshold. Yeah. So the theory about HEX is that a university education is good for both the person who gets it and for society as a whole. So society as a whole pays for some of your degree through the tax system and you pay for some of it through the HEX system. But you only have to pay if you got a financial benefit from doing the degree. So it's the ultimate try before you buy. So the repayments are collected through the tax system. So if you earn um, more than the threshold, which um, escapes me for a moment. 70 odd, 75 um, or 80 or something, isn't it? I will quick, that. quickly check mm-hmm. it in the black book while I'm talking. But if you earn above the threshold, you pay an additional tax to effectively amortise the debt um, that you've accumulated. And obviously, if you don't earn above the threshold, you never pay it back. So you could go your whole lifetime, not get an increased pay because of your degree and therefore never repay it. And that's why I like to think about it as more of a tax surcharge. And it's the only debt that we can take to our grave. That's right. Um, there, was some, there was some talk about... Um, fixing that or changing that, but that's never happened. And I don't think there's much political appetite for doing it. But generally, if you don't um, earn above the threshold, um, you don't pay it back. And the more you earn, the faster you pay it back. That's the the theory. So in Megan's example, if she wants to retire at 45, Mm -hmm. living off the income from her super, provided that super is enough for her, uh, she won't need to pay that back. Well, the test for income is effectively taxable income plus a few addbacks. So when they're saying, well, what, what's the relevant income here for the HEX test? It's your taxable income plus um, salary sacrifice uh, super contributions plus some fringe benefits plus net investment losses plus a few other bits and pieces. So anything that's taxable gets counted towards your HEX threshold. So if you're living off your investments, that's considered no different than earning the salary. Yeah. So I'm, I suppose, hypothetically like her, I'm saying that if she's under the threshold from uh, she's drawing down from her super, she wouldn't need to pay that HEX debt back. Correct. Now, the second half of that question is living off her super, which is a bit more interesting because yeah. super over 860 is not taxable. It doesn't get counted in your taxable income and therefore doesn't get counted for HEX purposes. Mm. So... When you actually turn 60 and start earning a tax-free pension, that income doesn't count for HECS. So I've seen quite a few 
58-year-olds going back to uni to do that degree they always wanted to do yes. and, in effect, never paying for it. So, But, but if, 40, if she's wanting to retire at 45, she won't be able to live off her super because she won't be able to access it. That's right. So she'll need to hit a condition of release. So unless she's planning on becoming totally and permanently disabled at mm. 45, she'll have to wait till 60 to get it. Absolutely. Um, Rough way to go about that. But, um, you know, I suspect that she's possibly underestimating how quickly she'll pay it off, Yeah, that if you start applying you know, annual increases and CPI to um, her income, and you know, depending on what the government does with the thresholds, I haven't redone the numbers, but I suspect 48 might be a an overestimate given that she's earning you know, close to average incomes. Yeah. And, so we'll, I- and we'll see some increases, even if they're capped out. I think in that, I saw that... Um, uh, thread in the group during the week, and um, I think she might have said she was likely to cap out at about a hundred. Yeah. Um, so that would that would accelerate that payment. Okay. So I suppose supporting your comments initially on this, the focus needs to be off the hex debt yeah. and onto creating wealth in other means, that's, and, and that's not right. worrying about this debt because it's not credit card debt, it's not personal loan debt, it's yeah. it's it's not terrible um, debt. I mean, it does obviously affect your the amount of income you've got available to spend. It does affect the amount of income you've got available to support a home loan if mm. you want. So it will reduce your borrowing, but it's not a debt in the true sense. So it dies with yeah. you. Um, but yeah. oddly enough, it does survive bankruptcy. So if you declare bankruptcy, your hex debt doesn't go away. Damn. So there's some upsides and downsides. There is, yeah. And and I suppose on a finishing note, I don't know how much hex debt is is normal out there these days because well, it's the continually average, going the, up. The average is about 30. Yeah. So it's on a, the high a, side. At graduation. Mm. So it's very much on the high side. But as you said, uh, Megan, you've got a, a bachelor and a master's, so you, you pay for that. I've always been of the opinion that – Hex debt is is good debt mm. as long as you're using what you uh, accumulate that debt for. That's right. And people do get a bit um, – and this is me defending my position as a boomer here. Um, <laughs> people do go, oh, you boomers had it easy. Education was free. Well, it was yes. actually only free for about a decade um, from the Whitlam government to the Hawke government. Yeah, so, a bit of history here. So that's not long in the scheme of things. Mm. Um, so this notion that university education used to be free, was only true for a very short period of time. For, for a 10-year period for these uh, these yeah. older folk. Now, don't quote me on the 10, but it was from yep. Whitlam, which, when was this? this it was the 70s, was The dismissal it? was 74. Yes. And Hawke was early 80s. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, Bob, Bob <laughs> but he left there. some good beer behind him. He did, and, <laughs> and still drinks it today, I think. Uh, great question, Megan. Thank you. Christine McDonald says, I have set up trading accounts for my kids, uh, grandparents and we contribute to them all EFT and dividend reinvented or should be reinvested, I believe. But now well, that I could reinvent them, you could reinvent them. But now that I have four kids, the brokerage each time is times four. I'm thinking I should close them and amalgamate them all in my own account for now and split the money when they're older, conscious of tax here. Is there a better way to set this up? There is no better guy on this planet to answer this than Vince. Um, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack here, John. Um, we've got a bit of tax. We've got a bit of brokerage. We've got a bit of you know, best way to give your kids money. Um, certainly, if you're investing small amounts of money and then dividing it four ways, brokerage will become a material sum, even though brokerage is way cheaper than it used to be. Yeah. Um, you used to be paying you know, $100 plus for a trade. Today, it can be as low as five. Yes. But there are ways of investing um, without paying brokerage. So managed funds will allow you to invest um, odd numbers, often by BPAY without triggering brokerage. It can so take a bit of research to find them, um, but you could certainly go to Vanguard yeah, Investor, for example. Like a Vanguard. Um, or um, some of the uh, Colonial Free State products. Yep. But it does take a bit of digging to do it. Um, but many of those can be bought without brokerage. There is a Buy, sell, spread, usually that's the difference between the price you buy it at and the price you would sell it at. But that's a percentage, so and usually it's very small. So that would be one way of cutting down your brokerage. Mm. Um, the second thing is to think about the tax here, and uh, Christine sort of alludes to that in her question. 
kids under 18 don't get the tax-free allowance for passive income. That's income they haven't earned um, by working. So depending on how much we're talking about here, they could be paying 60% tax on the dividends, even if they are reinvested. So having material amounts of money in your kid's name is probably not a good look. And um, it can get a bit complicated, you know, whose tax file number do you provide to the provider, Um, who's controlling the money that's being spent, Uh, you know, when the dividend comes in, does it go into mum's bank account? All those things will go to drive the tax implications. Um, If you are talking about material amounts of money where the capital gains tax on eventual transfer could be material, you might consider looking at um, investment bonds, which your kids would get tax-free after 10 years. Um, There is tax paid along the way, but um, depending on your your personal tax rate, and um, certainly if it would be a lower tax than it was in the kid's name because of that penalty tax. Um, And of course, keeping it to one side keeps it out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, The number of times over the years I've seen people set up accounts for their kids at birth and the money doesn't last past childcare fees. That you get to, you know, year two or three and you've got three kids at childcare, um, suddenly your appetite for investing disappears and the money gets withdrawn. So all of those things need to be considered. You know, I always say never let the tax tail wag the investment dog. Yeah, and I was just um, about to to add to that is, um, okay, we're talking about brokerage and we're talking about paying tax Mm -hmm. or or minimising it. Do we have the wrong focus here? Yeah. I mean, certainly if you're looking at um, a long-term investment, and I mean truly a long-term, like from birth to age mm. 18 or 21, where you're confident that you're going to stay the course, then yeah, a few dollars of brokerage here or there probably doesn't make a huge difference. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you're investing you know, $50 a week and paying ten, uh, four times $5 in brokerage, totally. you're yeah, obviously that's eating into the investment. But certainly you've got to focus on the goal first, get the investment right, and then worry about tax and brokerage. Yeah, I think the great thing here for Christine is she's not only thinking about it, but she's applying it. So she's investing and and she's looking at it for the future of her kids. Yep. Uh, It's just now just ironing out the weeds, maybe just look at some other options like uh, potentially a Vanguard where there's a – you can split them by child, can't you? You can. need to think about – your actual behaviour around that that yeah. determines whether it really is the kids or not and, <laughs> and whether it really being the kids is a good thing or a bad thing. Yes. Um, the other thing that's worth considering without overcomplicating this is some of the older listed investment companies like AFIC, Australian Foundation Investment Company, um, they have what's called a share sacrifice or share substitution scheme where instead of getting a dividend, which would be taxable, you get a share issued to you, which isn't taxable, but it's got a zero cost base for CGT purposes. So when you eventually sell it, you'll pay capital gains on the whole amount. Mm. But over a long period, that's a good thing. The downside though is you don't get franking on that dividend and you don't get the LIC offset, um, which sort of compensates LIC investors for not getting the capital gains tax discount on distributed capital gains. Mm. Okay. So if you're a top-rate taxpayer and you're happy with the investment strategy of AFIC, that could be a way to go. If you're a lower-rate taxpayer, um, the giving up the franking credits and the offset probably undo much of the, the benefit. Okay. Good stuff, Christine. Well done. But so, I'd love to be Chris, one of Christine's four kids. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like she put a lot of energy towards it, so that it'll, uh, it, it should work out well. Uh, Kim Tapley, oh, this one here. This, this is the, the toughest bit. You know, yes. People talk about finance being complicated, mm. but it's really the psychology, behaviour and relationships around it that oh, cause yeah. most of the problems. It might actually have nothing to do with financial planning. So, but let's, so, so uh, read Kim's question. Yeah, so I desperately need some advice on financial planning. 
My partner has no interest in speaking with a professional. He thinks they're just rip-off agents. I've asked him to read The Barefoot Investor so we can talk and try and hash out a plan ourselves, but that's fallen in deaf ears. At the stage of my life, not having a plan is is causing much anxiety. Presumably to her, not to, not to yeah, her not partner. not to him. He's travelling along just fine by the sounds. Yeah. We live day-to-day, pay-to-pay. I could really use some advice about how to try to plan for the future when my other half won't even talk about it. Does anyone know of any low-cost financial planning agencies or courses? Thanks. Now, let's start with the last sentence for you, Vince, because I know this might tickle a nerve or two. Yes, this is – I mean, this is what we do at LifeShop. This is what I've dedicated my twilight years to. And one of the things that we do is – well, we wrote – we put it together originally for newly engaged couples. We have a – a pre-marriage program, which we call Money Vows, which um, takes people through 10 guided conversations around around money. Yes. And um, in each one, they make a vow to each other. So it's a good way of dealing with goals, values, uh, personality, dealing with debt, dealing with making money decisions, dealing with the in-laws and money, all those sort of things that yep. you've got to get yourself together. And obviously, Kim and her partner have been together for some time by the looks of it, so they may not be mm. newly engaged, but that sort of thing would be extremely useful. Um, but you know, I think most people, whether they're in a relationship or not, don't want to be told what to do. And um, the, the barefoot investor... You know, having sold more books in Australia than anything yeah. other than the Bible is a force to be reckoned with, but it is very much a this is the way you must do it mm. approach to finance. And you know, there is a reason it's called personal finance, and that's because it's personal. Yes. So to be told you know what to do is likely to raise more hackles than it solves. Clearly, this is more of a relationship and um, values and goals discussion rather than a true financial planning. But usually in in a partnership, you usually get one who's more keen than the other. And quite often these days, it is the woman who takes takes the lead on these things. But, you know, badgering a partner into it and, you know, force fitting the, some particular author's specific way, um, when it may or may not fit your needs, is a difficult, if not dangerous, place to start. Um, and certainly, I'm not a fan of mixing money discussions with date night. I think every every couple should have a date night, but um, to mix um, a discussion around money into what should be a sociable, happy, joyful occasion strikes me as being an odd way. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't have a money date, mm. but I think mixing the two is a, a bad look. But this is clearly a, an alignment of values, goals, and life stage. Yep, totally and, agree. Um, it's not a, a money problem specifically, but it is one that's important for Kim and her partner to, to sort out. Um, yeah. And- and, but badgering someone into it is, is only going to make it worse. In, yeah. Look- and thanks for reaching out, Kim. It's a, it's such a common problem. I see it, uh, and and I'm sure you do as well, Vince. Yeah, but absolutely. I think you're right. It's it's values and beliefs and and goals and and know that as a couple, if we're in it for the long journey and we're maybe going to have kids, we've got to be on the same page. Generally speaking, in life, right now, everyone has their different goals and and different values. But generally speaking, if they don't align. That can be the difference between staying together or not. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you look at the markers of long successful relationships, aligned values is the number one marker. Now, aligned doesn't have to mean the same. No. That's important. And in fact, identical would probably be as bad or worse than, than diametrically opposite. Mm. But it is important. And a lot of these um, differences come around sort of four main areas. The three of those sort of start to show when you actually start talking about it. Um, but, you know, first, willingness to talk about it. Um, and that sort of comes back to, well, what do we see money as? You know, is money, money can mean love, money can mean power, money can mean prestige, money can mean security. And getting to the bottom of your money personality would be quite useful. Um, 
what we have a, a, a free tool on our website that might help you get to the bottom of your personality. If you go to if you Google Life Sherpa Money Personality, it'll get you there, and it's free. So try it out. Um, yeah. So but um, the other the three are usually around uh, debt hmm. and borrowing, um, giving. So you know if one party is uh, very keen on donating to philanthropic causes or a church, and the other isn't. And the third one is family, you know, sharing money with uh, family. Um, but, you know, Kim looks like it's getting to talk about these issues rather than the issues themselves is the problem. Yeah, so w- we all know we can we can lead a horse to water. It, it doesn't drink necessarily. So just knowing, Kim, that you do need to sit down with your partner and have a good, solid conversation and say, well, this is where I'm where I'm at. This is where I want to go. These are my goals. These are my values around what I want to provide for us and for our family or potential family. Um, Are you on board? And he might turn around and say, well, I I couldn't care less about money. Mm -hmm. I just want to have a beer at a pub on a Friday night and and work and live happily ever after. And and that's cool. But if she hasn't got his support... Mm. It's very much a different conversation now, isn't it? But if if yeah. she if he says, yeah, look, go for your life, Kim, um, I'll support you, but I, I'm not going to be reading Barefoot Investor and and um, carving up our money. Like you, you can control that. Yeah. I'm happy for you to do that. Um, but I think if if that's not alignment, uh, eventually there's uh, there may be some hard conversations had. Yeah, and I think that the timing and how you approach that discussion is important. Like mm. it's not something to do when someone walks in the door from a tough day at work oh. or their footy team's just lost on a Saturday yes. and approaching it from this is how I feel rather than you don't listen to me when I talk about money. Yeah. Um, going, no. Look, I feel anxious because I don't feel in control of our finances. Can you help me get yeah. there is a much better approach than you never want to talk about money. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the worst thing you can do is corner him into yeah. a conversation with a financial planner. Like yeah, that, I, that would be disaster. Yeah. Um, so without knowing both of your personalities, Kim, I think it's just sitting down and having a good solid conversation and um, and see where that takes you. Um, advice on financial planning, I honestly don't think you're there yet. Mm. I think there's some back-end stuff that needs yeah. to be fixed. Yeah. But, yeah, tr- try the money personality test. Do mm. Get each of you to do it. It will tell you stuff about why you do what you do with money and could be very revealing and provide a framework to have a a non-threatening, informed conversation. Yeah, it, it can't be blaming, it can't be any of that stuff that's targeted. So, yeah. Good one, Kim. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, let's take a break and we'll be back in just a gif. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, Simon Little. Hey, guys, would love to know how people decide when to sell shares. I had three different lithium companies. I have held since 2017, all up a considerable amount. Curious if people sell half at a certain point or just risk the corrections if the money is not required. Mm, Mm. Interesting question, Simon. Um, Sell at the top when you need it, when you want to buy a house, when you want to go on a holiday. So many different uh, emotions running through. There is. And... um, 
emotions is a, a very key one here. Mm. Um, but th- I think the more scientific answer to your question is it depends on whether you're a trader or an investor. If you're a trader, that is you're buying short term on the premise that it's going to go up. And if it doesn't go up, you want to close out your position and sell. Because when you're trading, controlling how much you lose is almost more important than how much you make. So in those cases, the secret is to run your gains and cut your losses. Mm -hmm. So if you buy a company with a particular thesis that says, I think it's going to go up because of X, and it doesn't go up and X happens or X doesn't happen and it still doesn't go up, then you should be cutting your position. But if your thesis proves to be true and it does go up, which sounds like it might have in your lithium case, um, you should keep, you should let your gains run. Um, if you're, if it then becomes too big a percentage of your trading pot, you probably want to start taking some money off the table. So if you had a, let's say you wanted to have a $10,000 position, you had a $100,000 trading pool and you were allocating $5,000 to a trade uh, on the basis that if you lost 5000 um, it was a manageable loss. When that 5000 got to, you know, 10 or 15 or whatever your strategy is, that's a time to take some money off the table. But if it's still running, you should let your gains run. Mm. If you're an investor, on the other hand, though, um, you want to stop a particular position becoming too big a part of your portfolio because as a investment runs up, it becomes a bigger and bigger percentage of your pool. And so in those cases, you want to be trimming your holding to um, keep that in position. So you de-risk as you go. Um, And similarly, if it falls, you've got to ask yourself, well, is the reason I bought these still true? And would I buy it today? Then in that case, you might want to continue to hold. Mm. Um, If the reason you bought it is no longer true, then um, it's time to cut your losses. Yeah. The only thing I'd add to that is, is Simon, I think we need to have a plan and, and not exactly. just understand the emotions of whether the share is trading well or not. Mm. I think there's two areas. If we sold, there's two areas we can place it. It's one is into lifestyle. So I go and buy a boat or mm-hmm. go on a holiday. Or, or two, I create some further wealth out of it in and maybe another asset that's, that you think is going to perform better. So there's only two ways you can go with that. The first one is definitely emotion. That's cool. You've got to live your life on your own terms. Um, But understanding what that plan is when you sell or if you would sell, what what are you going to do with it? Is it going to park in the bank? Is it going to go into something that's... um, You don't want to get too emotionally attached to your shares because they don't love you back. (laughs) No, they have nothing towards you, do they? Lindsay Whitehead. With interest rates rising in into the 5 and 6% range for mortgages, should we be putting less money into those micro-investing apps like Raise or any other investment app or ETF alternatives and put it into or onto the offset accounts instead? What's the math equations to figure out where it would benefit you more? Offsetting 5% with $1,000 on a $500,000 mortgage versus $1,000 in a Raise app that literally goes up and down so much, I don't know exactly how much benefit overall I'm getting. Just an example. Thanks in advance for your replies. Very good question at the it minute is a because good question. it's very different to what it was 12 months ago in the sense that interest rates were 2 and 3% instead of 5 and 6%. So does that change the decision-making based um, on the uh, rates? It shouldn't really. Um, I mean, psychologically, it has a huge impact. So well, yeah. let me come back to that. But generally, interest rates rise as inflation rises and the returns you should expect on an investment should similarly be relatively stable in inflation-adjusted terms. So if you were getting a 5% return when when inflation was 2 you you should probably be expecting to get six or seven when inflation is four or five. So that's the long-term answer. Now, it can take a long time for markets to get used to that. And when the initial increase in interest rates happen, often investments fall. So um, the short answer to the question is that in the very short term, like within a year, you're probably more likely to do better on the, or more reliably better on the um parking against your home loan. But in the longer term, in the you know, 5, 7, 10, 15 plus years, um, even at higher interest rates, 
you are likely to come out ahead. But this is not purely a maths problem mm. um, that you know, your parking money against your home loan gives you certainty, helps you pay off your home loan faster, and it's generally fairly easy to set up and easy to reverse because you just pull it out of your offset again. Um, investing in shares takes a little bit more work. You've got to work out what to buy. You've got to set up a brokerage account. You've got to put some money in. You've got to buy it. You've got to work out when to sell it. You've got to do some tax and you pay – sorry, you've got to do some tax return stuff and then eventually you're going to pay tax when you sell it. Mm. So all of that takes time. Share prices do go up and down as Lindsay says and it's very hard to predict what it's going to be worth tomorrow. Mm. It's a little easier to predict what it's going to be in 20 years' time um, and that's yeah. the – that's the game. And then, of course, there's the psychological comfort. You know, if your home loan is big as a percentage of the value of your property or it, your weekly pay, monthly payments are big relative to your income, then the flexibility of getting your home loan down to more comfortable levels has a huge psychological win. Mm-hmm. Um, so mathematically... You know, uh, one of the biggest questions we always get asked as financial advisors is, you know, do I pay off my home loan, invest, or put more money in super? Um, over the long term, after tax, super is always going to be the better answer. But it means giving up the money to age sixty. Yeah, it means you still age. have a big home loan, mm-hmm. um, and so it's as much a personal circumstances as a mathematical problem. Um, if you want to know the the maths, there is actually a detailed analysis of this in an article on our our website. So looking, Lindsay, great question. Looking mathematically, uh, we put $1,000 in your example against a 500K home loan. At 6%, we save $60 a year, Mm -hmm. like not groundbreaking. You put $1,000 into a raise app and it performs at 6%, same outcome. So maths- Ignoring the tax for a moment. Yeah. So maths don't really take a part in it. What, What I would look at is- I see it as four pillars. Um, reduce your home loan, increase your savings, increase your assets, minimize your tax. So I would say both. Like stick to yep. your plan of raise, mm. put an amount in that you're comfortable with, pay down that home loan with the remainder P&I and have some money sitting in the offset if there's some left over. Like $1,000 there or there is not going to change your life either way, is it? Yeah, that's right. So over the last 20 years – you probably would have done about 8.5% in Vanguard Diversified High Growth and you would have paid on average about 5% on your home loan. So over the long term, it will be the mathematically better answer that is investing instead of paying off your home loan. But is the answer better this week or next week or this month or this quarter or this year? That's a much harder punt to make. Just set where you're comfortable with. Mm. Very good question, Lindsay. Thank you. All right. Vince, what is your number one tip for buying your first house slash apartment slash unit slash something to live in? You know, this is one of those really hot topics. You know, we still, you know, despite slightly declining home ownership rates Mm. um, and people doing it later in life, it still is a, you know, one of those bookends of financial life for most people whether that's somewhere to live or somewhere to, as an investment. But it's also one of the ones that causes the most grief for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I were to look at the causes of financial stress in people that I see in my profession, it's having bought too much house or too much car. And um, it's very easy to find yourself in the buy too much house trap. You know, if you go to an open house and you ask an agent, how much will this sell for? They're going to say something like, oh, this will sell in the low 700s, which is sort of agent code for 710 to 750, as if those two numbers were immaterially different. Whereas actually the difference between paying 710 and paying 730 will pay for a lifetime of lattes. So you're getting the Buy right is actually the key to it. Um, so not buying, not buying too much, and buying at the right the time that's right for you. And so, one of those working out whether it's the right time is you know have you decided where you actually want to live? Um, are you going to be there for a while? Do you know what you actually want? Um, and test driving it a little bit. So if you 
you know, typically you can rent more cheaply today than you could buy today. So typically in- In the location you want. Yeah. So let's say you're you're in Sydney, um, typically rental yields are probably about four, three to four maybe, um, which means that a million dollar house will rent for thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, which is um, yeah, six hundred to eight hundred dollars a week. You couldn't borrow eight hundred thousand to buy that property for that price. So the buying argument, if I buy, I'm gonna pay more in weekly outgoings because I'm gonna pay interest at a higher rate than I can rent it. I'm gonna pay um I'm going to have to pay some principal back over 30 years. Uh, I've got to pay rates. I've got to maintain it. I've got to pay for the all those other bills that you don't pay when you're a, a renter. But the advantage of buying is that you've now fixed the price because rents will continue to go up at inflation plus. So at some point, at some point over your ownership journey, the rent will actually exceed the your cost of operating. The question is how long will that take? Yeah. But – the argument that says, oh, look, I, I couldn't afford to buy a million-dollar house, but I can actually pay $700 a week in rent. Um, if you can save the difference between that rental amount and what it would cost to own it without affecting your lifestyle unacceptably, then you know, if you try doing that for six months and see how uncomfortable or how comfortable it is, then um, that will give you an idea whether you're buying too much house or not. Okay, so not sure if I got your number one tip, but we'll come back to it. KD Tax <laughs> says, you don't have to buy your forever home straight up. It can be a home slash area that's good for now, yeah. not good forever. I think that's that's good advice that, you know, um, it can be tempting to, you know, if you've lived at home with mum and dad till you're 27 or 28, enjoying the good life, mm. it can be tempting to say, oh, I need... I'm not going to live somewhere I can't have the same level of comfort and yeah. quality. And that's a, that's a big and one for that's, people. That's a big step into the buying too much house. Yep. So buy the right amount. Now, because mm-hmm. of stamp duty, you, know, you obviously want to look ahead a few years. So you don't want to buy what's good for today but won't be good in two years' time. But you, know, you do have to uh, yeah. start somewhere. Yeah. And I must add, this is a, a question that was put into the Facebook group during the week here. Uh, Melanie Poole says, decide on the long-term plans now. If you plan to have it as an investment in the future, the way you handle repayments might be different to if you don't. Also, the choice of property might be different, e.g. buyer for demographic of the area, not your preferences. I, I'm sort of with you, Melanie, on that one, but also thinking, well, regardless of whether it's my principal place or an investment, I want to create the best wealth experience yeah. from that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the conclusion she draws is correct saying that if you, well, almost regardless, but in her particular point, she's saying that if you plan to in- rent it out later, you should think about that today. And that's yep. sound advice. Yeah. And, t- and in particular to things like offset accounts yeah. and whatever The else. danger though is trying to have a bet each way mm. and that the ideal investment property is unlikely to be the same as the ideal property to live in. Yeah. And trying to satisfy both tests at the same time, A, makes the buying process more fraught, and B, you're likely to compromise on you end up with the worst of both worlds rather than the best of both worlds. That's right, yeah. This one here got the most likes and this is my number one tip as well, Natalie. So uh, well done. Natalie Bridges says, make sure you can service a loan on a much higher interest rate or on one wage if there are currently two of you and you want kids. Go for something that still lets you enjoy your life instead of having all your money tied up in the mortgage. A first home does not need to be the be-all and end-all. De- definitely, definitely agree with that. And that goes back to my point about, you know, buy property not too much when the time is right for you mm. and um, test drive it first. So live your life as if you are paying the mortgage payments and the maintenance and the cost of living and see how you go. Mm. Because it can be – there are lots of restrictions you're prepared to put up with if you think, look, I'm saving really hard for two years. I can cut out a lot of – stuff and bear it for two years. But if you're you know, committing to do this for potentially 30 years, that's a completely different 
set of analysis. Yeah, totally. And and just on the and there's a few more uh, comments here, but I suppose depends on the time frame in which you want your dream home, or even if you know your dream location yet. Like for me. I was traveling around the countryside working and enjoying life. And for me, my dream location, I didn't know until 10 years down the track. Mm. So it was a rent vesting um, strategy until I actually knew what yep. it was. But the the key is we've got to be taking action in some way. We don't want to be just renting and just doing nothing else. That's right. Um, and I think one of the um, – this gets dealt with by someone else's one, but like just because you can borrow the money to buy it doesn't mean you should. Yes, Taylor um, Hughes. That if you go and have a look at any of the calculators on um, you know, lenders' websites or um, on the internet, you'll generally find that you can borrow a lot, a, a lot more than is comfortable to repay. Um, so most of the calculators will get you to somewhere around six to seven to eight times your gross income. Mm. And that, even at you know, lower interest rates, that would have a material impact on what else you can spend your money on. Yeah, And you want to be very careful of making those trade-offs, especially if interest rates... Get on the up. Yeah. Yeah. Wendy Nutt, she's got something very practical. Uh, measure everything. My <laughs> first car wouldn't fit in. So many tiny garages and the agent's solution. Just buy a new car. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's okay for the agent to say that, isn't it? Uh, well, like, agents would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> like we're all made of money. So I made sure everything would fit easily. So many places don't have floor plans with measurements, so I'll do my own. So take a tape measure is Wendy's advice there, which is um, fantastic advice. And there was another one to also say don't skimp on a building and pest by Sheridan Regan. So that's also very important and to hire the appropriate solicitor, don't self-act. I got a a gift of this little device that's got a laser in it. Oh, you how just good. point it at the wall and it gives you the measurement. It is just... That is laziness it's, it's, at its best, it's isn't it? It's not <laughs> obvious to the agent what you're doing and you can quickly jot down the measurements. Um, and even where there are floor plans, um, you know, agents are terrible for this. That yes. you'll, the measurement um, you know, isn't necessarily clear where it's measured to. Yeah. And so living areas and bedrooms are a prime example here. Yeah, but you can beds. sort of, you can draw some rules of thumb. Like if you've got a, a bedroom where the smallest dimension is less than three metres, that's a good sign that your bed might not fit. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the laser wasn't pointed at the agent's heart. It was actually to the wall, wasn't it? Yeah, it probably should have been. Um, (laughs) Sorry, no offence to any agent listening here. No, we love agents out there. Um, Yeah, the other big one that I find causes problems is people get very obsessed about the 20% deposit. Mm. So to avoid this lender's mortgage insurance thing. But one of the worst things you can possibly do is drain your emergency stash to get just below 80. Yes. And... um, that's not just me saying that. If you look at the statistics of mortgage defaults, mm. now we don't have very high defaults in Australia generally, but the, there is a spike in loans where the initial loan to value ratio, that is the ratio of the loan amount to the value of the property, was 79%. Yeah. So I think that tells you something. That, that if it you does. Drain your emergency stash to get there. You know, what do you do when you've got to replace the keys or yep. the boiler doesn't work or interest rates go um, up or, or interest yeah. rates go up. But there's yeah. always something you're going to have to do when you move in. Yeah. Something's not going to fit. You know, your fridge doesn't fit in the hole in the kitchen, which goes back to... Uh, Sharon, was it? Wendy's, Wendy's Wendy. suggestion. Yep. But it's pretty hard to get them all right. Something will need repair or replacement as soon as you move in. Yeah, absolutely. And so leaving yourself skint um, or you've budgeted for... Uh, quarterly rates and you find that the vendor paid up for the whole year mm-hmm. and you've now got to reimburse him for the rest of the year. These right. these vendor adjustments can often catch people unawares. At the last minute too, and two hours to go. Yep. And you suddenly find you've got to run another $1,000 in rates checks to the vendor. Funny you mentioned the 20% deposit. You might have heard on the grapevine, the Spotify exclusive My Millennial Daily. No. You know. Does that come with free LMI? No, but... Or a 20% uh, deposit? No, You no. only have to listen it's to a just, fifth of it? It's just Glenn, Shell and I yeah. uh, giving little five, six-minute tips mm-hmm. each day on Spotify. So tune in if you haven't already. Uh, week one was at the time recording this week. Mm-hmm. Next week is exactly that. 
how to purchase a house without a 20% deposit. Uh -huh. mm. So tune Gee. in if you haven't already. Uh, if you're not on Spotify, you need to get yourself across there and take a listen to My Millennial Daily. Excellent. That sounds like a good one. Just a bit of a But plug. not instead of Trip M3, though. This is as well. You've got to well, bro broaden your horizons. Yeah, you can just uh, use Spotify as your podcast go-to. You're still listening to M3. You're still listening to My Millennial Property, of course. You, you could just add it to your playlist, couldn't you? You could, yeah. There you go. All right. Well, um, Vince Scully, always a pleasure. John Pigeon, it's been a pleasure. And uh, until next time, thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you soon. Catch you next time. Bye for now. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.